You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 97 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library in Sitzhoff, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarybooth. Consider leaving a review or telling someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. Okay, so today joining us is Philip Shackelford, Library Director at the South Arkansas Community College and creator of the and host of the podcast, The Modern Scholar Podcast. Philip also is a past president of the Arkansas Library Association, past secretary of ArcLink, which is a statewide consortium of academic libraries, and an associate editor for the Arkansas Library Journal. We're going to talk with Philip about inspiration, being a military historian, and his book, The Rise of the Mavericks, and of course about his podcast. But first, let's, let, let's get to know our guest. So it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast for a number of reasons. First off, we're fellow podcasters and library professionals, but also you're a military historian on top of being a college library director, and you also serve on many uh, professional organizations. So tell us what drew you to libraries. Well, first, let me say what an honor it is to be invited on the on the show. I appreciate it very much, and I uh, want to thank you both for for having me. Um, as far as what drew me to the library profession, I'll, I'll start off by saying that you know I've been a lifelong library lover, um, uh, and I'm sure that's true for many of us in in the profession. Um, and I remember when I was about 16, I volunteered at our local public library uh, to help get ready uh, get ready for a major book sale, used book sale that they were having, um, unpacking uh, boxes of books and arranging them on tables for for folks to go through. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, wouldn't it be cool uh, to, to work at the library? Um, fast forward to college, I was majoring in history um, and starting to get the the impression that uh, teaching may not have been exactly what I wanted to do. I, I was kind of looking for um, jobs that, that might be history adjacent, but uh, not on the traditional academic uh, trajectory. Um, and I had a professor, he said, have you ever thought about getting an internship at the university library? And uh, so I did that, and the rest is is history, as they say. Um, the uh, uh, Kent State, where I, where I went to school, had a bridge program where you could start your MLIS uh, as a senior, and uh, uh, started there. And then I was accepted into the the history program, and uh, you know, a couple years later, graduate with both my MLIS and my master's in history. Wow, that's really cool. Double masters. So if you hold great. a master's, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, we were talking about double masters, so I guess that's something to look forward to for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Philip, so you hold a master's degree in history as well, so tell us why you are drawn to the history of the Cold War U.S. Air Force. Yeah, so it was a, a really interesting chain of events that that obviously I could not have uh, predicted at the time. Uh, but my grandfather was in the Air Force and actually was in the the Air Force Security Service. Uh, he was stationed in Scotland during the early 1950s, um, eavesdropping on, on Soviet communications. And so my brother and I had grown up listening to his stories um, and and hearing about his time in the Air Force and about that experience. Um, and then they obviously weren't. weren't 
very detailed, certainly nothing that would indicate just how secretive an organization the security service really was. Uh, but we enjoyed hearing about it and hearing about those experiences. Um, and then, you know, in college, as a sophomore, junior, you're uh, learning about historical methods and you've got the senior seminar coming up and you're uh, starting to think about finding a topic that you can write about. And so I thought, well, maybe let's do this. Maybe I'll look into the security service and, and see what can be done. And I was immediately surprised by just how little information was out there. Uh, nothing, nothing could be found. Um, and I mentioned it to a, a professor I was working for as a as a research assistant at the time. And we started uh, poking around the line and, and reading through some things. And he put it very bluntly. Uh, he said, your grandfather was a spy. And, uh, you know, even if you've started to get an inkling of, of the thing, you, the things how about that time, having someone put it to you that way in so many words makes an impression. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't forget something like that. And so I was hooked uh, to make a long story short. I was hooked and, and started uh, really digging into it not only uh did that topic for my my senior honors thesis but stuck with it through uh through grad school as well and uh so just to give folks kind of a, a broad overview um the the u.s air force security service was a communications intelligence uh communication security agency uh created by the air force in in 1948 and its mission was to gather uh communications intelligence that would provide uh valuable information that the air force needed to understand uh target um, and prevail over opposing forces in the, in the Cold War. Um, the mission did fluctuate in the later years of the Cold War to include electronic warfare, and it was later renamed the Electronic Security Command in 1979. Um, so, but exploring this history is not only a, a fascinating endeavor, but it's a it's an incredible glimpse into the inner workings of American national security and intelligence gathering uh, during the Cold War. Really, is amazing to think that your grandfather was actually a, a spy. It's it's. Yeah, it's intriguing. <laughs> so before we talk about inspiration and, you know, you can tell us about your participation. Can you tell us about your participation in the American Library Association's class of 2019 Emerging Leaders? Yeah, sure thing. I was very honored a few years ago uh, to be nominated to to participate in that program, the ALA Emerging Leaders Program. And the way it works in Arkansas is that our, our state association, the Arkansas Library Association, uh, chooses one librarian from the state, um, and then uh, you're sponsored by the association to participate in the program and, and to attend the, the major ALA conferences um, as part of that experience. And uh, there's a project component. I was uh, assigned to a team of other academic librarians, um, and we were tasked with evaluating the outreach activities of the instruction section of ACRL, um, putting together a, a report with recommendations that the instruction section could then use uh, to uh, evaluate and kind of fine tune its its outreach um, efforts. And, you know, it was a fantastic experience, not only for the program itself, but for um, the the connections. You know, here I, here I now had uh, connections with, with these other academic librarians across the country uh, that I could turn to for advice or, or call up and, and work through, talk through one one challenge or another and uh so i very much appreciate that and, and it was a great program it sounds like it was really a cool uh thing to participate in it was that was absolutely enjoyed it very much okay so we're gonna take a short break and when we return we're gonna chat with philip about his library and inspiration for his podcast modern scholar podcast but a whole bunch of other things so we'll be back in just a moment okay so now we play
And we are back with Philip Shackelford, Library Director at South Arkansas Community College. Okay, so Bob and I are both history nerds. When we found out you're a military historian, I knew, I, I know I got excited because I know I like to think of myself as like an amateur uh, historian. Uh, so tell us what piqued your interest to become a military historian and why the focus on the military? Well, so it's good to know I'm not the only history nerd, right? That, that's that's exciting. Uh, so yeah, by the time I got to college, I, I had a longstanding interest in, in history. Um, and as a kid, I'd been really interested in, in all things military. Um, but it wasn't until that going through that initial exploration uh, of the security service and, and what that really was, that I really committed to uh, researching and writing about a military uh, topic. In fact, before that, I had been really interested in, you know, pre-Columbian Colombian uh, history and some historical and archaeological and anthropological um, mysteries in Polynesia. So, uh, but but once kind of committing to to the security service, I was all in uh, with with military history. Um, and in the spring of my first year as a graduate student, I had the opportunity to present at the Society for Military History, the annual conference um, there, and that was just a fantastic experience. And you know, military history is a very interesting field um, with many different subfields and, and specialties uh, within it. And so what I do is kind of a blend of uh, military history, intelligence history, um, and organizational culture and organizational behavior, um, which is actually a growing trend um, in military history. We're starting to see scholarship that examines um, the the cultural aspects of military organizations, which uh, to me is is fascinating. Yeah, because you would figure it, it, it's talking almost like the social, sociological end of or of the culture of an organization, meaning whether it's Army, Air Force, Marines, yeah, exactly. Navy, or Coast Guard, or whatever it is, or the even interplay between the agencies, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what makes those different organizations behave in the way that they do? What, what makes the Strategic Air Command... Uh, the strategic air command. What, what are the distinguishing characteristics of, of different organizations and, and the ways that they behave, the way they operate, the, the preferences that they have? Um, and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. That is really neat. So we always enjoy speaking with people who seem inspired. And uh, so far, this podcast seems like it's a big inspiration for, certainly for me. You know, Chris started this podcast quite some time ago. And to date, he's come up with 97 or 98 uh, different topics. So I think it takes a lot of inspiration to come up with and develop a concept for a podcast. So mm-hmm. kind of tell us about your podcast and what was that, that spark that caused you to say, I, I really need to start this podcast. <laughs> well, let's see. Starting starting a podcast was something that I had been in, in the back of my mind for a while. I, I started becoming an enthusiastic podcast listener a couple of years ago um, and it started to think those thoughts that people often think when they experience something cool. You know, I could do that. Um, and kind of along with that persistent little sensation was this uh the idea of conversations um, that I that I could envision myself having conversations about libraries, about history, um, conversations that would involve not only talented people in the discipline and highlight you know fast, fascinating work that was being done, um, but also explore some of the persistent challenges uh, that librarians and historians uh, face. And so the hard part then becomes narrowing down the scope, right, um, of your podcast to something that is marketable, where people will listen to it and will get something out of it. Um, 
Um, and I had written an essay a couple of years ago um, about how our modern society should be able to expect more uh, from our historians and how historians can kind of market themselves uh, to the public. And the idea of these strategies being broadly applicable to, you know, quote, modern scholars uh, was born. And so I called it the Modern Scholar Podcast uh, with the emphasis to really just learn from librarians and scholars and community leaders who are, you know, not only performing cutting edge work, but share this same passion for educating and encouraging and and empowering uh, those around them. And so that's that's kind of how it was born and and, uh, and how we got started. Yeah, and it's funny listening to a couple of your episodes. The one, the first one I listened to, which I found the most fascinating so far, was the helicopter war. Talking and, and the fact that there was somebody out there that studied specifically how helicopters were seen as replacing horses in cavalry yeah. in in Vietnam. It's like, yep, wow, exactly. that's like such a, a hyper focused, like like skill, subset of studying a particular conflict. Yeah, and it was just blew my mind. I'm like, wait, okay, this podcast is for me. That's what sucked me in. Uh, I'm glad you're glad you're enjoying it. And it's it's funny. That too. really is cool. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of the podcast episode we recorded just before this episode 96 with Anna Rownick from um, uh, State University State uh, Library in Queensland, uh, talking mm -hmm. about Anzac Day um, and their oral history. So after we're done recording today, I will get you some info on that. Maybe she'd be a good guest for you. No, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. So can you tear down the fourth wall and let us know your process of cultivating a podcast episode? I know how hard it is. I know how we stalk. I mean, develop guests right. for a podcast. Yes. No, you stalk. You stalk. No, nah, well, <laughs> you, you know. Absolutely stalk. So, yeah. anyway. so just because I'd love to hear your process of how you find guests yeah. versus how we find guests, you know, and how do you find guests with interesting topics and how you develop, how you use that to develop your show? Twitter. Exactly. Right. No, in, in, all, in all honesty, Twitter uh, has really been a fantastic resource, not only for promoting the show, um, but for noticing what people are doing, you know, books that are coming out, uh, learning about people and projects that I would otherwise have not have the opportunity to to meet or to to have a conversation with. And so as, as far as finding potential guests, uh, it's just been a mix. It's really been a mix of, of folks kind of in my professional network and that I've met at conferences um, and then folks that I encounter uh, on Twitter. Uh, and as far as, you know, cultivating episodes, topics for episodes, you know, I'm, I'm very adamant that this is not just a history podcast. I have, you know, an obvious bias towards military history, but my guests have represented a, a number of different uh, subfields within history, um, as well as, you know, both public and special librarians, uh, podcasters, nonprofit personnel, uh, folks from the publishing industry. Um, and so the main priority is still having conversations with historians, librarians, community leaders who can illuminate important work and tell the stories of their respective uh, professions. Uh, you know, if you've written a great new book or conducting exciting research or you have an innovative new library program or you're working to feed your community, you know, we want to hear about it. That's that's what it's all about. It really is one of those things where you just want to find interesting people who are doing things just outside the box because our field is lives so within boxes yeah, that to find somebody who's not, whether they're groundbreaking or whether they're thinking differently or whether they're developing new types of cultures or inventing a new way of doing what we do as a, for a profession, I think that's really important. And I know yeah. for for our podcast, that's what I think is the attraction is to hear other like minded people who have 
new and interesting ideas and our, our spin obviously is on technology but sure. you know in terms of you know what you do in a library podcast it I think you, it doesn't take a lot to get a librarian hooked, but it has to be that particular niche that that librarian right. is into. So it really exactly. that makes a difference. When you're talking about inspiration, just imagine uh, the, the the inspiration and the ideas that you can get that I get. You know, anytime that I'm listening to a podcast, uh, I'm, I'm kind of I have that that in the back of my mind where I'm thinking, oh yeah, that'd be a great idea. We need to try that. Uh, and uh, just just the, the the real source, the real resource that podcasts can be. Absolutely. No, that's great. You know what, even besides beyond the military history, which I think is fascinating, um, it's such a great way to bring community together. And, and like you said, Twitter gets you to places that you couldn't otherwise reach to. Yeah. Even by word of mouth, Twitter just yeah, exactly. I mean, it gets you out there. So it's great. And it's more than just and a toxic environment, yeah. too. You're right. Right, that's true. Yeah, more, even, if there are, even if there are millions of fake users on it, probably. <laughs> mm -hmm. You can edit that out, Chris. It's okay. No, uh, it's so. Cool. I'm sure there are some listeners out there that, that listen to our, pod, our podcast and, and think that they too can start a, one of their own. And we completely encourage that. And just talk to Chris at the St. John Public Library. He'll show you how to do it all. <laughs> so, um, but we also love to talk about tech. You know, Chris and I have a long uh, history with technology um, right. on this podcast. So, so can you share what, what tech you use to record your podcast? Like what's the secret sauce hardware that's behind the scenes? Sure. Well, let me be the first to say that absolutely anyone could do what I'm doing for, for this podcast. My, my technical skills and, and the technology that I use are, are not going to impress anyone uh, that's doing this on a higher level. Um, I've just used Zoom uh, to record the interviews. Uh, Zoom is something that, you know, in a post-pandemic world, we are intimately more familiar with uh, than, than we might have been previously. Um, and so I use Zoom to, to meet with the guests and to record the episodes. And then I just pop that audio over into uh, GarageBand, which comes standard on my MacBook computer. Um, and uh, I am, you know, by no means an audio engineer or a talented audio editor. Uh, my brother is in the music industry. And so if I do run into problems or if I have questions, I can ring him up. And, you know, he's very capable, very generous to to help me through that. Uh, but then I'm using Anchor for my platform. So once the editing is done, I just pull it over into Anchor, which is I think it's owned by Spotify. It works with all the major um uh, podcast platforms and you're able to you know put in the content put in the show notes and, and schedule your your episode releases and it's really straightforward once that's done it, it goes out in the in the release schedule and, and shows up uh, wherever you get your podcast uh so uh like i said not going to impress anyone with the with the technical side but uh, uh user user friendliness is a is an important consideration <laughs> well you know it's interesting that you bring up anchor too because i would yeah. use blueberry and there's a hundred different podcast hosts out there and whenever i uh, give talks on on how to start a podcast. You know, people think, oh, I just uploaded to iTunes. Well, yeah, no, not really. Yeah, not not anymore. <laughs> so, does Anchor create your RSS feed? Yeah, it did. Okay, and it's interesting yeah. that it's because I've heard of it. I didn't know it was associated with Spotify. Yeah, it's a product um, that is owned by Spotify. I do believe it's. A it's a free uh, distributed platform, and so you're able to. And actually, they they will include some. There's a there's a small audio library of like uh, transitions. You know, if you need to to drop something into to an episode, um, but it's really simple to use. You can upload. In fact, you can upload um, the entire video file uh, from a Zoom recording, and they will strip the the video out, and you're just left with the audio. Um, and it's very easy to kind of drag and drop where you want things to be, um, and then save save the audio. You can go back even if you have 
have an episode scheduled, you can go back into the audio, adjust it, even if it's the day before, and it will upload uh, perfectly the next day. Um, and so it's been it's been really easy for somebody like me, who's who's definitely a digital immigrant, uh, to to really kind of navigate uh, navigate the podcasting world. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely a different process from us. But hey, you know what? Everybody does it differently. Our, our really good yeah. friend, Chris Kretz, who's a local history librarian, um, you know, he ha- he uses, uh, I forget what he uses, Libsyn, I think. And, you know, mm-hmm. he uses just a, a handheld. And, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's, it's so much, I think it's so much fun talking to other podcasters because we all get to the same destination, but we all take extremely different routes to get there. Yeah, totally. And, and totally. I think that's the beauty of, of podcasting, because not only does it show the different flavors of what you do, it also shows the different flavors of tech that you use in order to get from point A to point B. And I always find that so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really democratizes the folks that, that can get into this, right? Because all you need really at the end of the day is an iPhone or, or something similar, and you can start your own podcast. It, it's really, really simple. And, and uh, you know, like, like I'm sure you've, you've heard from a lot of folks, if, if you have an idea, Go for it. You know, there's there's nothing nothing in the way. You can you can definitely do that. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what do you feel is one of the biggest challenges managing a podcast from the outset through publishing? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty streamlined. You're more streamlined than we are. Um, <laughs> but in terms of you know that management end of things, you know, yeah. creativity is one thing. You know, trying to come up with uh, find guests, find something that's interesting, and then developing that content. So tell us yeah. about that process. Sure. I mean, well, there's there's a couple different ways you could go with that. I think getting to a workable concept, you know, the branding piece um, is hugely important because that sets the stage for everything else that you're going to do thereafter. Um, the, you know, the topics, the guests, the marketing, everything. Um, so that's that's hugely important. There's also the scheduling piece um, when you're dealing with guests who are working, you know, around the country, even internationally, in, in a variety of different environments and industries. Um, nailing down a good time to record and then making sure that the schedules stay uh, the way they need to do. That's that can definitely be be a challenge. Uh, so staying organized uh, is is definitely a key there. Um, and then there's the thing that we all worry about, right? The you know how to get people to listen, how to promote your show, um, how to avoid pod fade, and all the things that go along with with failing to keep up with with a podcast because it you know it really is a complex endeavor. Uh, it takes a lot of time and research and. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, so here again, I, Twitter has been an important resource or an important tool for me just in terms of uh, promoting the show. Um, and then my strategy for kind of avoiding any sort of crunch has just been to record as many episodes uh, ahead of time as possible. Um, and I, I don't want to get into a tight situation where I look up and, oh, there's no episode for next week. Uh, what am I going to do? Um, and so... Uh, for anyone, you know, kind of thinking about this, that's what I would, I would, you know, set up your infrastructure first, get your your platform and your social uh, media uh, accounts set up, nail down your concept, um, and then uh, stay organized and record as many episodes ahead of time as you can, and uh, just kind of stay ahead of the crunch. And that is the trick: trying to stay ahead, book those guests ahead of time, yeah. and and just, or if you're doing a different type of podcast, it's not an interview podcast. I've helped some people put together some fiction podcasts and some true crime podcasts and all that other stuff. And you have to stay, the, the trick is, is staying ahead of the curve. And when you fall behind the curve, it's the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. What do you call that? Chris, you call it stacking, right? You have guests. Yes. Stack, yeah, we're stacking guests. Yeah. But we have to start yep. stacking guests again too. We, our, our stack is very, very small right now. <laughs> Chris likes to have a couple, right? That you can, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
the more the merrier, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So again, uh, talk about inspiration. You need to have that quality when you take on the monumental task of writing a book. Um, so tell us about Rise of the Mavericks and, and how you became interested in the U.S. Air Force Security Service. Uh, it sounds like it was born around the same time as the Air Force was spun off from the Army. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So, so like I mentioned, I mean, my interest was was born of of hearing my my grandfather's stories growing up, and and then realizing in college just how secretive an organization uh, the security service was. Um, and you're right. The command was established in, in 1948, uh, just a year after the the Air Force had become its own independent service uh, created by the the National Security Act of 1947. Um, and really, those early efforts uh, were a fight for survival. Um, the the national the Air Force had been obliged to to wait uh, for a number of years uh, as part of the U.S. Army uh, before air leaders could pursue uh, service autonomy, and they knew that intelligence, especially in the new and uncertain Cold War environment, uh, would be absolutely critical. Um, and so these two ideas were were linked together. There's there's an awesome quote uh, from General George uh, McDonald, who in 1947 becomes the first director of Air Force intelligence. Uh, but back in 1945, while the war was still going on, the Air Force was still part of the Army. Um, he writes a memo uh, where he says, uh, you know, it seems to me that when a service gives away dominion over its intelligence, it has, in fact, given away its independence. And so this is the attitude that the Air Force has kind of leaving World War II and entering the, the Cold War period. And these Air Force leaders, they knew exactly what they were doing from the get-go. Um, they they immediately set about the task of establishing an effective communications intelligence organization that would provide the information they needed, but at the same time allow the Air Force to overcome its dependence uh, on the Army. And so one of the reasons we've hardly ever heard about this command is that many of the records related to the security service and its activities and its relationships with other uh, government agencies you know, remain highly classified. Um, and another reason is that intelligence organizations such as the CIA, the National Security Agency, um, attract a lot more attention. And so they're more explored um, in the literature. Um, but the security service is important. It, it provides a useful lens uh, to study the Air Force at large, um, the transformative developments that kind of characterize this transition from World War II into the Cold War. Um, and the command itself can be viewed as a case study in military organizational culture and behavior um, in regards to how the command originated and then developed, but also worked to preserve um, autonomy and meet the requirements of both service-oriented but also national level uh, missions. Uh, so it's it's a fascinating story, uh, and it's a it's a story that needed to be told. You know, it was interesting when when I was um, looking at the book and mm -hmm. and listening to you know, like you said, your your grandfather was a spy. Uh, with listening stations, it reminded me of the picket ships. I don't know if you're familiar with what picket ships are. Um, they were Liberty ships during World War II that were reestablished and put like 15, 20 miles off the coast of California as listening stations and radar stations just looking for um, Soviet bombers. Yeah. And that was the first thing that came to my mind from the naval standpoint where, you know, now we have picket right. we had picket ships, you know, sometimes they were even 40 miles offshore because we didn't have that long-range radar that we have now with satellite imagery and everything else. And right. I just thought in the same vein, like, wow, how antiquated does that sound that they were recycling Liberty ships to be, you know, stations in the middle of the ocean to try to listen for for Russian bombers. Yep. yep. 
Well, and that's why we, we ended up with, with ground stations. You know, my grandfather was stationed in Scotland, you know, collecting signals. Communications intelligence is, ba- is based on signals intelligence. And you really have to be in uh, beneficial locations around the world to really uh, receive or intercept uh, those signals. And so Scotland uh, was one of the northernmost uh, ground stations that, that the uh, Americans operated during the Cold War. And it was just perfectly placed uh, to overhear, to eavesdrop on uh, Soviet Air Force communications. So it just... Just an absolutely fascinating uh, chain of events, fascinating command. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, it, it kind of has this, this storied Cold War history. It goes through Korea, the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, and then ultimately changes names uh, at the end of the 1970s. But um, still, you know, those functions are still being performed by the Air Force today. You know, the 16th Air Force, uh, Air Force's cyber um, is still still involved with, with those same kinds of, of questions. Uh, and so it's just a, a fascinating history. You know, it also reminded me when I was a teenager, and I'm going to date myself back in the 80s, um, my mom had a radio with like multiple bands. And I got bored one night because I was like that kid at night listening to the skip off the ionosphere of AM radio and trying to find the furthest radio station I could find, right? And here we are on Long Island in New York, and I think the furthest west I got was like Minnesota or Calgary. And the furthest south I got was like Atlanta. So fun stuff, right? So then I said, I wonder what I could do with shortwave and longwave. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, Cold War. And I found on shortwave, Radio Moscow. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. So now here I am. I look like a creep because I have like, it had, a, it had the, the little two prongs for the antenna. And here I am with tin foil going 20 feet out, lining my room and, you know, just trying to, to catch as much of it as possible. And I would listen to Radio Moscow, which is complete propaganda. Sure. But it was so much fun to listen to because you're laughing the whole time, you know, imperialistic West and blah, blah, blah. And then I come to find out years and years later, that transmitter was in East Berlin or in East oh, Germany, yeah. East Germany, just east of the, the West German border. And to yeah. think about how that signal would skip off the atmosphere and come down and hit me in New York, it blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And even in terms of the, the movie, they shall, um, we were soldiers once. There was one scene, I don't know if you've seen it, where they were doing training and they were using the same radios that they were using in Vietnam and they were catching skips off the atmosphere and they were actually hearing firefights come over their handhelds as they were training. And yeah. it's like it's just amazing how radio frequencies work and all this. So we're get I'm going down a, a nerd rabbit hole. No, no, I'm sorry. It's wild technology. Yeah, and 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 really the centrality of technology in that story um, is what what drives what what makes it all possible. Um, and it's just, of course, now I guess the equivalent, of course, the 16th Air Force now is is the cyber element for the Air Force. So it's now uh, cybersecurity and cyber intelligence and, and all of those things. Um, but uh, technology's technology's key piece. Yeah, you're not kidding. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. So we want to thank you for coming on the podcast to speak to us about you know your podcast, your book, and, and being a military historian. It really is a cool thing. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to be asking Philip our top 10 library questions, or what we call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And like we always do, we give thanks to Melanie Cardone from over at the Long Republic Library for naming the list of questions. So we're going to be back in just a moment.
And we're back for the third segment with Philip Shackelford, Library Director at South Arkansas Community College, who will be our next participant in our O3 2 list. Questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a source for library news that has stories and interviews related to library length. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. They do a great job of educating and informing library professionals on topics from all over the world. Thank you, as always, Literary Hub. Okay, so you ready? Let's do it. Okay, first question. What did you want to be when you were a child? So I went through a number of different phases as a kid, as I, as I imagine many of us many of us do, uh, as far as I, what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, but I, I did always want to be a writer, uh, so that's been a huge part of, of who I am. Uh, but another interesting passion that I had was farming. We grew up in a, a, a semi-rural area. Uh, we had uh, chickens, and I was into gardening. And I actually had, in high school, uh, my own little business where I would sell um, eggs you know, to other folks to so that they could hatch and start their own flocks. And so, yeah, 15. 16, that's what I wanted to do. We've never had farmer. That's, that's a good one. Nope, never had one. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? Yeah, my, my first memory of a, of a library was going to our lo local public library with my mom. And I remember uh, getting my first library card. It was just a piece of thick paper with a metal clip in it that you could run over the machine and and check out your books. Um, and you know, so libraries and 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 books have have been a huge part uh, of my childhood. And I really credit my parents, my mom, uh, for taking the time and and making the uh, sacrifices to provide good books for us and uh, spend time reading to my brother and I. Um, and uh, you know, I wouldn't be here today without without that investment of of love and and time and energy. Okay, so when did you decide to work in a library, and what was your first? Was it your first career path? Uh, so it probably wasn't my first first career path, at least not exactly. My, my junior, senior year of college, again, I'm, I'm kind of going through that process of, of trying to determine, okay, what's something that's history adjacent? Uh, it may not be teaching. What what are what are the possibilities that are out there? Um, and uh, decided to pursue the library path. And really, my first path within the library profession uh, was as an archivist. Uh, most of my training and internships and, and experiences at that point were um, in, in archives and special collections. Um, so I didn't actually get into the, the management side until the, the year between the summer between um, my first and second years of, of the masters. Um, but uh, wouldn't have it any other way. I absolutely enjoy it and uh, uh, get to do. And, you know, I consider myself uh, blessed to be able to do what I went to school for. You know, a lot of people don't get that opportunity. No, and so many times it's like a second career path or third, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially in this yeah. profession, 90, 90%. So, who would you say is your favorite fictional librarian? <laughs> favorite fictional librarian oh that's a tough one um i'll tell you can i i'll do a fictional historian will that work sure well, yeah. close enough. <laughs> so i've been enjoying the uh the jeremy logan series uh by lincoln child uh recently um and the, the main character of that series dr jeremy logan is a professor of medieval history at yale um but he actually ends up investigating all sorts of other you know unexplained phenomena and so i just think it's cool to have a main character that's that's also a historian you don't see that uh too often so what would you be doing if you weren't working in libraries in the Air Force? Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> right on, working on the radar in the Air Force. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, as you know, as part of my experience in, in the library world, I've 
kind of been exposed to the nonprofit world. Um, and so there are certainly times when I think that starting or, or leading a nonprofit would be a great gig. Uh, but I'm a, a self-diagnosed big picture person with, with too many ideas. And so, you know, there's also times when I think about, you know, starting a business or opening a restaurant or, you know, I, I think libraries are just the perfect environment for somebody like me because we get to do a lot of different kinds of things every day. Um, and I really enjoy the, the variety. That's good. So what would you say is your favorite section on the library? Oh, history for sure. Um, and I'm going to go I'm even narrower than that. I think uh, military and intelligence history in particular. Yeah. We should have known that. What a question. We should have known military history. <laughs> it wasn't cooking. <laughs> right. It wasn't cooking for once. Yeah. Okay. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? Mm. It's always a dream, oh. right? Yeah, totally. There's a number of things I'd love to add. Um, I would love to have a teaching kitchen um, in the library, um, recording and production studios. I think those would be fantastic. Um, and one thing we're currently thinking about developing is a library of things, right? Tools, cooking utensils, uh, so forth for people to check out. Uh, so those are some things I would I would definitely pursue. Lawn darts are big. So don't forget the lawn darts. When lawn you absolutely. Yep. <laughs> a huge <laughs> connection. Lawn darts. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yep. The old ones. Real steel one. And large Jenga. That's another biggie. Yes, totally. Yep. Totally. So what do you... Uh, so what do you... Oh. oh, is that you? I'm sorry. No, that's you. I'm sorry. I can't that's read. Me. That's okay. It's you. For once, you're stepping on me. That's good. <laughs> so, so what do you absolutely love about libraries, besides the variety? Because you already said that. Libraries are in the people business. Um, every now and then someone will ask me about the future of libraries, right? Will there even be libraries in the future? Or will it be all just a huge server farm and, and everything will be online? And my answer is no. I mean, libraries are not about books. They're not about computers. They're not even really about information. Um, at the end of the day, libraries are about people. And as long as people need help navigating challenges or taking advantage of resources uh, that are available, opportunities to learn and grow and thrive, um, that means to me that libraries and the people who work in them always will have an important role to play. Um, helping others harness the power of the library to meet their personal or educational or um, professional goals. You know, libraries are agents of change um, and able to facilitate discovery, uh, growth, and opportunity. And, you know, all, all we have to do uh, is explore. So what's the weirdest, not necessarily worst, but weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library career? We all have the stories. Everybody's got at least one story, if not 10 or 12. You guys are digging deep with these questions, man. Um, <laughs> weirdest thing. So uh, it may not be weird as opposed to just really, really interesting. Um, so we on our campus, we're, we're two-year college, but the, the campus itself has been here for uh, parts of it for over 100 years in, in various different uh, iterations of, of educational uh, uh, organizations. Um, and so in the, the attic of our administration building, which was built in 1905, um, someone at some point found uh, a, a signature uh, scrawled on the plaster in pencil uh, Elvis Presley. And uh, rumors are that it is authentic. It's been it's been checked out. Now, how he ended up in the attic of our administration building, we do not know. Uh, he did play here um, at the high school auditorium in the 1950s. Uh, but why why he ended up in the attic, we're not sure. But we are we're very happy to to have an, an Elvis uh, Presley signature. <laughs> that's that's wow. I'm speechless for that one. Right. That, that's <laughs> we've never gotten anything close to that. 
a signature of Elvis Presley in the attic. Yep. Yeah. Wow. All we need is location, location, and we can we can go get that Elvis Presley signature. <laughs> right. <laughs> that bring it back to the Sage of Wyvern. That and a sawzall. That's yes. it. We can put it on display under guard. Yeah. Well, that's really that's really cool. That's actually what that's probably my favorite. That's that's the most unique I think we've ever done. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah, pretty good. So, did you have a favorite regular patron besides Elvis Presley? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's there was this couple. They they used to come in quite a bit. They've passed on now, but they used to come in quite a bit. And we we kind of ride the line um, between academic and, and public libraries here. We we are obviously serve our, our students and our faculty um, as an academic library, but we're, we're in a downtown location and, and we're open to the public. Um, and so we, we have folks coming in and and, and taking advantage of, of our collection and so forth. And there was this couple that would come in. And over time, I, I started to understand uh, what this gentleman, what he liked to read. And so I would sometimes curate displays uh, based on things that I thought he would like. And it was always really gratifying to see him check out a book that I had put on the display or something that I had recommended. You know, uh, good times. Good times. OK, final question. What are people without library cards missing out on? Man, people without library cards are missing out on the time of their lives. Um, I think one of the hardest things we have to contend with is this widespread perception that libraries are just quiet buildings filled with books and quiet people who don't like loud noises. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and that perspective to me is just a symptom of someone that hasn't set foot in their local library for, for a very long time. Um, as I said a moment ago, I think libraries are about people. Um, and libraries today are vibrant, active, and dynamic places where you can go to learn new skills, attend concerts and programs, you can have meetings. Yes, you can check out books if that's what you want to do, uh, but, but libraries are, are centers of innovation and uh, engines of positive economic impact in their communities. Um, and folks who, who choose to ignore their local library are losing out on an incredibly enriching experience. Absolutely. It's it's one of the most unsung heroes in our society, actually. I, that's why I feel totally. about it. Yeah. Yep. So give us some plugs. Your podcast, your book, the Arkansas oh. Community College. Go for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, appreciate that. Modern Scholar Podcast. It's uh, wherever you get your podcast. Um, I have to get a, sh a shout out to Naval Institute Press. Um, they're the they're folks I've been working with for the book, uh, Rise of the Mavericks. It's been a great, uh, great process. Uh, they've been great to work with and uh, should be coming out in uh, spring of, of 23. So appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. And, and thank you guys for, for having me on the show. It's an absolute blast. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. We, we were Thank going you. back and forth for a couple of months, so I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for coming. Thank you. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves. 
Krista Christofaro, and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.